You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 71. This is Abby Tabor doing my best Matthew Buffington impression because your usual host has been called away to NASA headquarters on urgent business. But I have Frank Tavares here with me. Hello. Hello, Frank. So tell us who's our guest this week. Well, today we have John Hogan, an environmental scientist in the bioengineering branch here at NASA Ames. Mm-hmm. What does he do? Tell us what we're going to learn. So John works on life support systems for environments like the International Space Station and basically thinks about um, how can we be energy efficient in these spaces? How can we mm-hmm. reuse and recycle um, to some extent the materials we that we produce there? Right. So how can we take you know excess waste, even just in the form of the carbon dioxide we breathe out, and turn that into something like oxygen that we can reuse. Um, And this all happens basically on the molecular scale, which is really important, not just for space exploration and space travel, Mm -hmm. but also for an Earth that's being increasingly depleted of resources like fossil fuels. Yeah, that's so interesting, because on the space station, even our breath is a waste product, right? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Okay. Well, as Matt likes to remind everyone, we are a NASA podcast, but we are not the only NASA podcast. Our friends at the Johnson Space Center have a podcast called Houston, We Have a Podcast. We actually just did a joint episode with them where we talked about the experiments that we launched the space station and how the astronauts work with them. And also NASA headquarters has a new podcast called Gravity Assist that'll take you on a virtual tour of the solar system and beyond. So before we jump into our episode, one reminder, we have a phone number. You can call with any questions or comments, leave us a message, and we'll see how to add that to a future episode. That number is 650-604-1400. Otherwise, you can do the same on social media, where we use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. But first, today, let's hear from John Hogan. you end up at NASA? How did you end up in Silicon Valley? Hmm, that's a, a little bit of a long story. Normally it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I can trace a little bit back to when I was a kid. Uh-huh. There was a time, um, I think it was probably 10th grade, I had a teacher who was teaching astronomy. Okay. And it really piqued my interest. And I remember having my own notebook that I was drawing out constellations. And I actually made a telescope um, stand and, oh, really? And saved. I didn't have much money, but I had mm-hmm. allowance and, and worked and bought a cheap telescope and mm-hmm. built a stand with the angle of inclination also correct and oh, wow. went out and started using it. And um, actually, I, one of the first things I saw was Saturn with the rings around it. And I ran in and got my father. He came running out, <laughs> and we all got to see Saturn. This is like in high school? Uh, yeah, like, probably in the ninth, ninth grade. Okay, yeah, nice. Actually, probably ninth grade. So, but nothing much happened of that, and I actually went to school for environmental sciences. Okay. So I'm an environmental scientist uh, by training, and um, I got all my degrees at Rutgers University, mm-hmm. and actually uh, became a faculty, a research faculty there. Oh but, wow! But working um, with NASA after I was done with my PhD, um, and I was working in biological waste treatment of all things. Okay. NASA presented a, uh, a, a grant back then called um, the NSCORT, NASA Specialized Center for Research and Training. And it was a five-year program that they would give to a university. And we had multiple universities associated with it. And um, it was for bioregenerative life support. Okay. So we looked at all the different types of life support technologies that could be biological in nature mm-hmm. to recycle water back to drinking water, carbon dioxide back into oxygen or products. 
um, how to treat waste and bring waste back into products that you can you know reuse. How to grow plants, systems analysis, putting it all together. Uh, super useful if you're living on a space station. E- exactly. <laughs> or going exactly. to Mars or, or on Earth. <laughs> well, really, because, I mean, yeah. that's the thing that I think most people don't think of. It's like we're making life on ISS, on the International Space Station, has to be very, like, efficient. Yes. And it's like, I'd imagine there's got to be tons of lessons learned for... You know, we think of countries or other places where maybe water's hard to come by. Yes. Um, Working for NASA actually changed me quite a bit as an environmental scientist. I was used to working in unit processes, you know, this hazardous waste system or this composting system, wastewater treatment system. And what came in and what came out were kind of blind to you beyond that that scope, right? Okay. You, You had a really narrow focus. And I started working in all these different areas and putting it all into a very integrated um, system, which w- once you realize you're in a spaceship and it's much smaller, <laughs> my output becomes your input and vice versa. Okay. And so it matters amazingly much more, uh, at least seemingly, uh, in, in a spacecraft than it does here on Earth. But as you stand back and start to look at the Earth, and I know it's an old metaphor, spaceship Earth. Yeah, of course. Um, but in reality, life support systems are critical wherever we're going to be in the universe mm-hmm. at, at any point in time. So no matter where you are, you're reliant on your life support systems. And for, for planet Earth, we have a tremendous set of ecosystem services, the whole system, the, yeah. you know, from the sun powering us to um, all the physical and chemical and biological processes that go here on here on Earth, always keeping us alive, and they're all our life support systems. And so we try to mimic those, right? We try to yeah. take what's going on there and and bring up mostly technical versions of those and put it in the space station. But what I learned was that your life support systems, that the Earth yeah. really, has life support systems which are invisible. Yeah, it just it's always there around us. You know, we, we call us. it a tree, we call it a stream, <laughs> we call it a bird, we call it a bacteria. You don't think it, how it's converting sunlight into, you know, or carbon dioxide into oxygen, you know. Exactly. And and they're operating 24-7, and every component of the Earth has its role that it's playing right now. And so when you build a system um, like ISS or, or going on to a Mars mission, you're essentially trying to learn what's going on there. It's highly efficient. It, it's it's right. remarkably beautiful, too, yeah. right? How do you bring that, you know, that into a, a Mars system and maintain yourself in a reasonable and, and smart way ad infinitum? Mm-hmm. You know, not just for a couple of months, but, you know, just move on. I think we all have the thought or we have it in our brains about being energy efficient. You know, you use a certain kind of plug or a certain kind of power supply, a special TV that has the little, like, right. energy thing. You know, because it's like you know, we're creating energy. You want to be more efficient and save money. But, like, you know, that can fall into being efficient with how we use water, being efficient of how mm-hmm. the, the air that we're breathing and that right. we're, not, we're not wasting any precious molecules. right. right. We're the limited resource in space. Right, exactly. I mean, when we breathe, we produce about a kilogram of carbon dioxide per person per day. Okay. Um, so we're going to be doing that here on Earth or anywhere we go. How much more we produce is a function of all the other processes that we do. Right? And um, understanding the balance either within a spacecraft like ISS or an Earth spacecraft is essential on a systems level, understanding those and balances. And so, so you started off like doing as an environmental you know, scientist and you're researching and you're doing this stuff for NASA. At what point does it turn towards like, oh, hey, that you started picking up the, 
the NASA.gov email address. <laughs> right, right. So um, I'd been working with NASA for about six, almost seven years mm-hmm. uh, at Rutgers, and I really liked what I was learning at NASA. And we got to approach things in a much more integrated way than I, I was able to in yeah. environmental sciences. Um, I got to know the people and really liked the, everything and um, sort of developed an opportunity a couple of places, but I wanted the one <laughs> out here names the, the most. And I uh, came through and I was actually working on, a, of all things, a, a database uh, project, okay. which sounds a little unusual. but. When you're putting together requirements for systems and building systems and, and developing technologies and gathering all the information, if you want to integrate that into a larger system, you need all that information to be captured well. Yeah. And it was just sort of this little sidebar from all the other stuff that we were doing when we were doing systems analysis that we needed this information. We need to capture it from all the people who were generating it. And so it was uh, an old project we called it um, an Opus um, Online Project <laughs> Information System. And, okay. Um, it was a database that we just collected, and we ended up going to all the different areas of life support and creating uh, a system that that could grab that data. And now, what kind what kind of data is this? Is this like the oxygen in the room or, or thing? What exactly is that? For the life support processes that we were interested in, it was more like. Um, if let's say that you had a wastewater treatment system that okay. you were developing, what were the inputs that you were putting into it? What were the components of that? How much energy uh, did it use? The mass, power, volume, any reliability data, um, any testing data that you had? We're trying to gather it all because yeah. there's other people who are pure systems analysts who, mm-hmm. who do mission planning, and they start to design these spacecraft and and need to say, oh, we're going to take this piece of equipment and this piece of equipment, start to put them together and they form big spaghetti diagrams of this comes sure. out of this one and goes into <laughs> this one and make a model of that and start running the models and seeing does this work or not. And and for them to get good data is, is absolutely critical for these models to be uh, of use. Yeah, if you don't have that inconsistent data that, you know, like how are you going to improve it? Exactly. You wouldn't even know it's wrong. Right, right, right. And, and so that was what got me here to Ames. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had been a, a waste treatment person for quite a while, wastewater treatment. And so I also work with those groups okay. instantly. So I've been, I've been doing that for a long period of time as well. And I've done a little bit of everything actually yeah. here. Um, it sort of reflects what I was doing at the NSCORT too, which was a little bit of everything. Because we have done a lot of in in the waste realm, which is either just safening the waste, just trying to find a way to take the waste out of at, the system, out, out of the system and, yeah. and um, there's um, systems that have been worked on, like the compaction system and the heat melt compactor, okay. but, but also ways of, of oxidizing the waste, you know, thermally processing and turning it back into carbon dioxide and water okay. and coming up with an ash. So there's a number of systems like that. I also, I'll tell you a little funny story. We got, we worked on a, a toilet concept at one point. Okay, all great conversations start with, I, I, I was working on a toilet concept. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you are in the uh, microgravity environment, it, yeah. you know, going to the bathroom is very different, and I, there's an awful lot out there already. I won't go into the details. <laughs> we can only, one I, can imagine the complications of zero gravity. Right. Yeah. Um, but when they were going back, and this was this was a little while ago now, when I first came out, uh, and I came out in 2004. So I, okay, yeah. 
they were going back to more of a Apollo type of design instead of uh, the shuttle. Okay. And so it was going to be volume constrained again, really small. And so in the Apollo missions, they didn't have a toilet. Um, they actually used bags that okay. um, you essentially adhered to your your rear end. Really? <laughs> yes. Okay. And um, you can imagine, nobody liked that process whatsoever. Mm. No, right? of course. Sure. That was the worst part of, of, <laughs> of travel. Um, and so we were tasked to try to design a system that could be a f- good, functional, usable toilet. Okay. And uh, so we, we did that, and with something similar to what they had on when there was a space lab, they had a lot of room you know, in there. But anyway, we had to do some microgravity testing of that. Yeah. We, we didn't use real people. We, you know, we had <laughs> we had systems that simulated um, <laughs> nice. various processes, and um, so I got to do quite a number of uh, parabolic flights. You know, testing really? that, that system whole... out. Yeah. So you get twenty two seconds of of free fall <laughs> where you stage you know, fright, <laughs> and, and then there's there's two minutes of of two G where you're, you're coming back up, and so we're doing all of our sort of resetting operations in those two minutes when your arms weigh twice as much and you're, mm-hmm. you know, you, you weigh twice as much. And and then, you know, you wait for those 22 seconds. And so this happens yeah. you know, essentially 50 times per per flight. And we went out for many different flights testing, testing different concepts. So we got to play around once in a while. And uh, oh, it, wow. so I'd recommend anybody out there who gets a chance to do this, <laughs> y- you will enjoy it. And, and please do take the medicine. <laughs> that is, oh, I'd imagine. <laughs> I was going to say, even just talking, it's like the 12-year-old inside of me has so many like poop jokes coming in that I just got to hold it all back. Well, they they, <laughs> they did call us the, the poo crew. No, oh, nice. Yeah, so we really appreciated that. <laughs> but it's just one of those things. You would take completely gravity for granted. And I was like, right, right. you know, it, it helps a lot when you're going to the restroom. Yeah, yeah. It's not coming back the other way. And so um, how long were you working? Are you still working on this stuff now? No, or so- How so does your career a, kind of ebb and flow a, Actually, that? now- I, so I did a lot of work um, from there. I started also working with the um, the air team. So this is okay. um, how to capture carbon dioxide and water out of the air. Yeah. So you know, if you were to tape up this room and have no air come in and out, uh, we wouldn't last very long, and carbon dioxide would would kill us yes. uh, relatively quickly. And so um, there's always a system that's pulling out carbon dioxide from the station air or any spacecraft air. And so we're trying to design systems that that regeneratively pull it out. Things like the space shuttle used to use a lithium hydroxide canister, okay. and it would chemically combine it, and um, it would get used up. And then you would see the astronauts, pictures of them changing out the CO2 canisters. And they would just bring enough canisters with them to handle the load expected during mm-hmm. a mission. It's not a long mission, so it's not so bad. Um, and that's literally just taking carbon dioxide and turning it into oxygen through this like no, a no. process or something? Or it's just trapping it and getting rid of it? Trapping it and getting rid of it. Yeah, okay, it's okay. just trapping it in the canister. Okay. Yeah. But when you go out for longer periods of time, it's too much mass. It's not a good way to do this. Mm-hmm. So we, we develop regenerative systems. And so they have um, a system on ISS right now called CEDRA, which is um, a four-bed molecular sieve system. And it pulls out first the water. You know, it's um, okay. it, the CO2 sorbent that we use is very sensitive to water. So they have to pull out the water first, or else it absorbs mostly the, the water. The moisture that's in the air, or is the, the water out of the molecule, or I don't know. It's out of the air. Okay. So okay. it'll be just normal air that's in Condensation, this room. whatever. Yeah, we're always breathing out water. Um, mm-hmm. and we're always sweating a little bit of water. And so you need to re- pull out the water all the time, too. 
Otherwise, it would just get completely humid, 100% yeah. humidity, and condense, and it would be a rainforest inside. Yeah, imagine how space stuffy space. it gets. You know. It would be, yeah, it, it would be the Not disaster, a fun time. right? <laughs> so we, you know, we're very responsive to humidity. And so um, you pull out the water first, but um, you don't really, that's not what you're looking to do. You're just doing that because you got to pull out the CO2. And uh, then the, the, the dryer goes to the CO2 beds, and there's one that's, uh, that's absorbing, and there's another bed, they call it a swing bed, that is desorbing. And so it's thermally being heated, it's rejecting the CO2, and we capture that CO2, and it goes to a system they call Sabatier, and that is a carbon dioxide reduction system. It takes hydrogen from when we're, we're split water. So we get oxygen on station by splitting water, H2O. Mm -hmm. We knock the hydrogen off and we get oxygen off of that. And the hydrogen that comes off of there, we combine that with the carbon dioxide at the body A system, and okay. it produces methane and water. And we keep the water because that's where the oxygen is, and we throw the methane away right now. We're essentially okay. venting the methane. But I'd imagine the ideal situation would be you use the methane for something. Exactly. Or, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, right now there's four um, hydrogen molecules leaving with every carbon on the methane. Okay. And so we become hydrogen limited in the system. So we're also looking at methods of how to get that hydrogen back. And so I've done a lot of work there, and I've, most of the work I'm doing right now is in the synthetic biology realm because I've I'm, okay, yeah, I'm actually. Uh, a microbial ecologist by by more by training in terms of environmental science, and we have a lot of projects going right now looking at biomanufacturing, where we are trying to use things like carbon dioxide. Um, and in fact, we have a car carbon dioxide based manufacturing project going on right now. And uh, this, this is you know I, I really enjoy this one, so I'll spend mm -hmm. I'll spend a minute or two on this, but. Um, you know, if you think about our, our future here on on Earth, yeah. you know, right now we make an awful lot of the products that you see in this in this room or mm -hmm. anywhere, and, um, out of fossil fuels. Yeah, exactly. Um, all the plastics that we make, mm -hmm. you know, any kind of plastic clothing, all the energy all, all to, the ener to make ex those exactly. things. Yeah, and um, the chemicals which you never see, which are designed to help make things and make glues and everything comes from fossil fuel. And at some point in humanity's future, we will not have yeah. fossil fuels anymore, right? Not not stored the way they are now. And uh, the things we make out of biomass, you know, so trees and um, corn stover and all the things that, you know, plants grow, we won't be able to replace that manufacturing capability by growing more plants. It's, we already have mm -hmm. a food limitation issue. So, you know, one of the main ways that we're going to be making things in the future is pulling carbon dioxide and water out of the air mm -hmm. anywhere you are because it's always flowing past and nitrogen is flowing past. And so you have carbon and oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen. It's the four atmospheric commons that anywhere you are and renewable energy wherever you are. And we'll be converting that into the products that we need directly. Mm. We won't be going through the millions of years to make a, a fossil fuel and then use it very quickly. Yeah or the many years it takes to grow a tree and make a wood piece, will be going directly Go from- straight to the molecules. From atmosphere to the molecules of manufacture and be making things that way. And, and also, I mean, when you're talking about like, you know, pulling carbon dioxide out of the air, especially even on like a space station, I think the first place, um, you know, people who, you, you know, if you're environmentally focused, I mean, my brain, the first place it goes to is thinking, you know, we're on a planet that's creating a lot of CO2 whether it's humans, cows, or power plants, we make a lot of CO2. Is there any hope to like 
to expand or, or like start pulling some of that out of the air on a larger scale? I mean, this is just like research for a very small environment, but right. you know. Sure. So, I, you know, this will be a component of, of maintaining a reasonable CO2 balance on the earth. Yeah. When, when you look at the actual CO2 carbon balance, and, I, you know, I'm not an expert in this area, but when you just look at the general numbers, yeah, yeah. Um, the amount of carbon that's in our manufactured goods, you know, durable goods, it's small in comparison to the amount that we're actually liberating through fossil fuels okay. and or um cutting down rainforests or, yeah, or, yeah. or changing soil use or or opening up uh, permafrost areas, you know. Yeah. Um, but as part of a sustainable ideology, no matter where we go, whatever planet we're on, this is very true. It's yeah. it's going to make sense to learn how to do this and do this well. And so, it's you know, it's, currently it's not not very economical. Yeah, obviously, right? Yeah. As compared to fossil fuels or getting sugar out of sugar cane. Making those molecules is is not as as cheap in the way that where we currently are, but that's you know there's an awful lot of you can't fool physics. We'll, we'll, there'll always be a, a certain energetic <laughs> yes. re- responsibility that we have to own up to, but the advancements that, uh, that can come in the future are something that that we're trying to to forward quite strongly. For, obviously, for the use in space. But we would expect all of those to come back and be useful here on Earth at some yeah. point. Yeah. As I always say, anybody who's working on the International Space Station, it's always working off the Earth for the Earth. Right, exactly. Yeah. And the things, you know, you can be incredibly efficient up in space and applying that to how we live here is just, is critical. We, we do a lot of stuff to make it work in space. You know, so the high reliability is, is often really important. And so when you think about an old, old cars, the old Fords when they first came out, not so reliable, right? But yeah. You, you know, and got the job done, but you had to fix them up. But know? they've increased in complexity dramatically. Yeah. But even though they're much more complex, they're much more reliable, mm-hmm. right? So you know, a lot of that kind of technology development is going to happen. The miniaturization of things for space is is also really important. Down here, we don't care if things are somewhat big. You know, it's it's a transportation issue or yeah. how much room. But there, we need a, a a GC mass spec to be, you know, the <laughs> size of you know a, a loaf of bread or smaller, right? Which drives all kinds of different innovations that you normally wouldn't think about. Then the applications start to blossom of where you can put this and where you use this. Yeah, I mean, you just never know where the technology is going to go. I'd imagine talking right. to myself in middle school with a Walkman, a Game Boy, and in <laughs> <laughs> books, and yeah. like now it's all and a telephone or a cell phone. Right. It's like if you were to have told twelve-year-old me, it's all going to fit in one little piece of metal in glass. Wait. You know, never even fathom that that could happen. When I was in grad school, I was taking data off of paper sheets <laughs> and graphing them by hand on graph paper and taking vellum and, and hand drawing ink drawings over it. And oh. th- that's, you know, I spent weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks just sitting at a desk doing that. And now that would be seconds uh, yeah. in, in comparison. Um, the calculations on a calculator, right? Exactly. <laughs> was, was, was dramatic. And so, you know, we keep seeing you know those sorts of uh, um, advances, and I'm, I really look forward to seeing our advancements in as we become more aware of our roles as life support systems on Earth. That we're not just guests here, but we're crew. So the Earth has all of its life support systems, and we will become Earth life support. Yeah, you know that's that's our eventual, you know, reckoning essentially. Um, and as as we mature as a as a species, as we keep going. And I really look forward to seeing what happens in, in that realm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's definitely an exciting future. Um, so for folks listening to the podcast, um, if you have any questions for John, then uh, we are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley on all the fun social media stuff. If you want to go old school and give us a phone call, we are at 650-604-1400. Call, leave us a message. We can either bring it back to John or we could like add that and have John come back and answer the question and, and figure out how to do that. So, but thanks for coming on over. This has been fun. Great. Thank you. It's been great being here.